Well, we do have a lot to cover today, so I invite you right away to grab your Bible and turn to the book of Job, and we're going to uh, continue where we left off a couple of weeks ago. We're in the final section of the book of Job, and uh, this is, um, uh, I was telling somebody the other day, I, I don't think I've ever been this sad to come to the end of a Bible book that I've been teaching through. I mean, it's always like, okay, you know, that was fun and great, you know, and let's move on to something. I don't want to stop Job. I just want to keep going. I've got a list of probably 25 message ideas that have come out of this that we won't be able to do. We're going to try to try to land uh, the airplane here um, uh, probably about mid-January. Uh, Gary's going to be coming to teach uh, Exodus uh, in the spring semester, so we're excited about that. But um, So we're going to try to wrap this up in the next month or so. And um, last time, and I, I went ahead and left it up on the board there, um, one of the things that we have to wrestle with in this book, that we have to kind of stand back and stare at and think about is, um, maybe the part of the book we don't like to admit, maybe maybe so, maybe you don't struggle with this, but, but here's, here's kind of where we left off last time. In Job chapter 1 and 2, Job is this righteous, godly man that even in the midst of terrible affliction and great suffering and, and, and the abandonment of his family and friends, the loss of his property, his, his retirement, we could think of it like that, and even his health, he continues to praise God and worship God. Um, he says to his wife, shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? And he continues to bless God and worship God. Uh, we see him blessing the name of the Lord at the end of chapter 1. And, and, and we say, yes, that's the way it's supposed to be. Job's our hero. This is great. And by the middle point of the book, we see him stumbling and by the time we get to the chapter that we're in now, we see him flat out contending with the God of the universe. We see him going from praising and worshiping God and, and seemingly unshaken by even the worst circumstances, and then we see him sticking his finger in God's face saying, Hey buddy, I want to bring you to court because I don't think you have this one right and I want to show everybody that you're wrong. And I say maybe it's not a part of the book we like to think about because it's a lot easier to say Job's our hero, we should be like him and ignore, um, ignore the sin in his life, ignore the hard parts of the book. But here's the question I want to, I want to ask you. How did he go from here to here? How did he get there? And, and as I introduced for you last time, if, if you study the book of Job and if you especially look at the Psalms, the Psalms have been very, very helpful in helping me to think through this sort of progression of things. Uh, and even Jeremiah and Lamentations illustrate some of this for us. Um, I want to talk to you about this progression today because I think it's very, very helpful to see how we can go from worshiping God and praising Him to accusing God of wrongdoing in a very short amount of time. And I hope and pray that it will be helpful to you as, as we think about our own hearts, as we think about how we respond to suffering. Um, 
These are all from last time, and I think I gave all these to you last time. What we might call the the sequence, the the chronology uh, of this progression here. And uh, what I want to do is um, is go through some of these verses with you and and show you these things, okay? So we can kind of sort of unpack them, and you can see uh, the progression here. Um, I already mentioned it, and I think you're familiar enough with it. Um, Job starts off praising God. Job one and two. That that's where he is, and we see those those psalms listed there that reinforce that. Turn back to Job chapter one, and let's just remind ourselves of uh, where Job began his journey in this book. Job chapter 1, after that first uh, tragic day when uh, uh, tragedy struck his home and his family, chapter 1, verse 21, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, And the narrator tells us in verse 22, that in the midst of all this great suffering, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Now, you got to see that. That's the narrator's way of saying, at this point, he's the furthest thing from this. Okay, And right out of the gate, the narrator draws attention to that. You say, why does he draw attention to that? Because he's not going to stay there. The, the, the suffering is going to bring things out of his heart, and he's going to progress all the way down that, that spiral there to where he's contending with God. And, and the narrator right in the beginning is saying, I want you to pay attention to this. We're supposed to take note of the change in Job's heart throughout this. Look at chapter 2. We see the next day he comes in, Satan again afflicts him with a great illness, a, a disease of some sort. All he can do in verse 8, he takes a potsherd, a piece of broken pottery, and scrapes himself to the point of bleeding and lacerations because it's the only thing he can do to bring some relief to his suffering. His wife says to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. He says to her, Do you speak as one of the foolish women speaks? Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And then again, the narrator reminds us, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Okay, That's where Job begins. And yet, look at chapter 3, verse 3. After a time, after the the suffering has continued day after day, the affliction has not let up, there's been no relief, no help, no support, to where he breaks out. He can't hold it inside anymore in chapter 3, verse 3. Let the day perish on which I was to be born, and the night which said a boy is conceived... May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. He says in verse 11, Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not come forth from the womb and expire? Okay, now I'm going to show you this progression a little more. But literally overnight, he goes from here to hear. You see that? He goes from praising God, worshiping God, to now he's questioning. Now he's verbalizing the doubt in his heart. Okay? Why does that happen? Well, let me, let me show you how this works by uh, looking to the Psalms. Look to the Psalms. 
And I don't know what the best way is to do this. Um, let's start. We're going to start in the middle right here, and we're going to work toward praise, and then we'll work toward contending so we can we can see it. Logically, the progression, you can see it a little bit easier if we start sort of in the middle. Remember last time I told you, there's no neutral here. There, there's no spiritual fence sitting allowed. You're either remembering God, trusting Him, declaring it, praising it, or you're forgetting it. And as I told you last time, I think this is where we live a lot. We live right here. Everything's okay, but we're not actively involved in reminding ourselves of the truths of God's Word. And when we forget, then when something happens, we begin to question. Questioning leads to accusation, and accusation can lead to contending. Let's start right here, okay, with this remembering or recalling. I read Psalm 42 to you a little while ago. The psalm that, that is the first half of that is Psalm 42. So let's back up to Psalm 42. And I want you to see this here. Uh, any single one of these uh, could be one that we unpack and sort of set up camp in and, and, and look around because uh, these verses are so helpful. But we're just going to do a little bit of a jet tour here today. Um, you remember this, this is a psalm where you see chapter 42, verse 5, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Something has happened in the psalmist's life. We, um, Gary and I have both uh, preached these two uh, uh, chapters consecutively, and um, and we both kind of came to the same conclusion. You, you don't know the exact background, what, what the what the thing is that's causing him the trouble here, but he's in some sort of despair. He's had some sort of hard time, some sort of trial, and and I want you to see the first thing he does. You see it there in verse four. Look at what he says: "These things I remember." You see that. In the midst of his trial, in the midst of his suffering, he says, I am being intentional to remind myself and to remember certain things. You say, what things? Well, let's back up in the psalm. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Okay? And he recalls those things. He, he pours out his soul to the psalmist. We see him remembering in verse 5. Look what he says. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, for he is the help of his presence. Look down at the end of the psalm, verse 11. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, for he is the help of my countenance and my God. Okay? And you see, as he struggles, he's trying to remind himself of truths about God that he knows will encourage his heart. That's not my favorite place to see that, though. Um, flip over to Lamentations. And I want to show you this in um, what is probably, to me, the most, I don't know, memorable incident, at least. Lamentations chapter 3. As you're turning to Lamentations 3... Uh, you know, your Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, right? Just keep going to the right. This is in the midst of... Lamentations is the funeral service for the city of Jerusalem. Uh, the bad guys have come in, the Babylonians... Well, first the Assyrians, and then later on the Babylonians came in, and they destroy Jerusalem. They, they destroy the temple, they destroy the city walls. The city is burning. 
Jeremiah has spent his whole life, 40 years of ministry, he's been warning the people to repent. They have not heeded his message. And so not only is he discouraged because of that personal ministry that people didn't listen to, but now he's seeing God's judgment because the people didn't repent. So so Jeremiah is sitting out on the hillside east of Jerusalem watching his beloved city burn. And, and you know the psalm, chapter 3, verse 1, I'm a man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand and repeatedly all the day he has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. And he continues on in that vein. Even when I cry out, verse 8, and call for help, he shuts out my prayers. Verse 10, he's like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. I feel like God is like this animal that's just going to devour me at any moment. Verse 14, he's become the laughing stock to the people. They mock him, even in making up mocking songs about him. Verse 15, he's been filled with bitterness. Verse 17, his soul has been rejected from peace. And the end of verse 17 says, Jeremiah says, that I've forgotten happiness. My strength has perished, and so has my hope in the Lord. And he laments, remember me in my affliction, my wandering, my wormwood, and my bitterness. And then, verse 20, surely my soul remembers. What does he remember? And it's bowed down within me. This I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. What? He has no hope. God doesn't listen to him. He's unhappy. He's discouraged. He's afflicted. God's this lion that's going to jump out and pounce on him and, and kill him. And then something happens. He remembers something. He recalls something. And he says, when that happened, now all of a sudden, my hope is restored. And you see how remembering, remembering is the first step in the right direction. Okay? You say, well, what did he remember? He kind of, he kind of plays it out a little bit. He doesn't tell us right away. He tells us in verse 22 and following, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And because of that, here's the bottom line. Here's Jeremiah's bottom line. What does he remember? Verse 24, the Lord is my portion, therefore I have hope in him. Okay, the the, the, Keith's translation, I remembered that God is all that I need. And that brings me hope. Okay, But, But again, I want you to see how this issue of remembering functions in the psalm. Remembering is the hinge where he goes from discouragement and despair and lamentation to trusting, telling, praising, and obeying. Okay, Remembering is the hinge. That's, it's that important. And uh, we see it again. Whoa, did I do that? Or did one of you do that? Were you, were you looking ahead? Okay, all right. I'm sorry, I must have hit the button there. Okay? So we see the praising, or I'm sorry, the, the remembering, the recalling, to remember, to, and on all those verses I've given you there are examples of in a psalm, he's discouraged, he's despairing, he may even be accusing God, and then he remembers. 
and it changes everything. Okay. Now, once you remember, what's the next thing that has to happen? You have to tell yourself what you remember. It's not enough to say, well, I know, I know God's faithful. I know He's true. You do what Lamentations does. You do what Jeremiah does. He says, this I recall to mind. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Okay, that's all indicative, right? He's just describing what God is. Watch him personalize it now, okay? Watch this, watch this. Verse 24. The Lord is... What is it? What is it? My portion. Do you see him personalize it? He takes his theology, and he's not content enough just to remind himself nebulously about the character of God. He says, no, 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 God is my portion. And he tells himself the truth. He goes from remembering to telling. We read it in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. What does he say? Why are you a despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? And then what does he do? He talks to himself. He preaches to himself. He says, soul... You hope in God because you will again praise Him. He is the help of our countenance. He is our God, meaning God is the one that changes me from the inside out. And and if remembering is the first step down the right direction, telling is what takes what we remember and it personalizes it. It applies it to where I'm not just speaking hypothetically about God. I'm saying I'm clinging to this faithful God. He is my hope. He is my joy. He is my portion, as Jeremiah so helpfully illustrates. Well, once we're doing that, once we're remembering the truth, now we're applying the truth, that sets our heart up to do what? To embrace it. To, to trust in it, to trust Him. And uh, just well, maybe one example there. Uh, flip back to Psalm 31, and let's look at this. I'm trying to give you a, a broad spectrum of, of examples here. Yeah, Psalm 31 really uh, drives this home here. And again, in Psalm 31, we don't have time to look at it, but you see the same progression. Again, I don't know if any of you read the Psalms. Some of you like to read maybe one Psalm a day or whatever. As you go through the Psalms, look for this. It's all over the place. And you go, why didn't I have seen that before? I don't know. I'm looking for years and finally saw this. But watch how, watch how trusting shows up in the midst of this Psalm that, that shows the same progression. Psalm 31, verse 14. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord, I say, you are my God. He remembers, he applies, and then he says, so I will trust in you, O Lord. You are my God. Oh, it's so tempting to just keep going on, but i gotta got to keep going. Okay? And then the last thing, of course, is the praising. The praising. When you're remembering and when you're telling yourself the truth, you're personalizing it. And then you're, you're preaching to yourself. And then your heart is embracing. No, no, do you notice the progression? Here, here, and then it comes out of your mouth. Okay, You're remembering here. You're trusting in your heart. And then you're verbalizing all that with your mouth. And, and I, I agree with C.S. Lewis that praise completes our joy. It completes our joy in that. It's not done. It hasn't culminated yet. This whole process is incomplete until we've verbalized and expressed 
what's gone on in our hearts. Okay? Does that help? Do you see that? Um, now, on the other side of the aisle, what happens when we're not remembering, we're not telling ourselves the truth, we're not trusting? Well, the, the first step is forgetting. And this is, this is really an interesting study to do. Um, and again, we don't have time to look at all these. Flip back to Psalm chapter 9. Uh, Psalm 9. And let's look at a few verses here, okay? Look at 9.17. Um, well, let me read this and then I'll, I'll, I'll say that. Describing the wicked. The psalmist in this verse is describing what the wicked do, okay? What do the wicked do? Verse 17, the wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who do what? They forget God. Well, that's interesting. Okay. Look over at Psalm 78, verse 7. Let's, let's just go through a couple of these here. Okay. 78, verse 7. This is that wonderful psalm that's calling on fathers to lead their families, lead their children, to pass on the faith from generation to generation. And in the midst of that wonderful vision that the psalmist gives of uh, what families are supposed to be doing, passing on the, the great things of God to the next generation. There's actually four generations here pictured. The psalmist is going to look back to years, generations past in Israel. And he's going to say, what was the one thing that past generations did wrong that led to the children not following God? What, what was that one thing? Interesting. Verse 7 of Psalm 78, that... What are we going to tell the kids? That they should put their confidence in God and not, what? Forget the works of God and not be like their fathers. Verse 8, because that's what their fathers did. Have you ever read um, the, the Pentateuch that Gary's going to be getting into? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Do you know how many times in those five books, what we call the Law of Moses, there is a command to not forget you ever notice that don't forget don't forget don't forget don't for i wish i could show you that we don't have time but it's all over the place and then god does stuff to make sure that we don't forget he says every year i want you to sacrifice this lamb um, at twilight uh, eat, eat, eat it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread and i want you to put the blood over the door why because i don't want you to forget the passover right and then every year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, I want you to go in, you take these two bulls, and the, the high priest will go into the holy place and, and put the blood on the mercy seat. Why? So you don't forget that you need atonement. There's all these holidays designed to remind the Israelites of the things of God. You say, why is that so important? Because forgetting is the first step down the road of dishonoring God. Do you see that? It's all over the Old Testament. It's all over the Psalms. And, and once you're forgetting, once you're forgetting the things of God, uh, by the way, I'll show you this here. Psalm 119, these are all verses that talk about forgetting God. You say, well, the Psalm 19 is about the Word of God. Yeah, it is. And it's all about not forgetting the Word of God. Okay. 
So once we start forgetting, we're not reminding ourselves actively of the things of God, then something happens, and we see exactly what happened to Job. He's not remembering, he's not actively reminding himself, and in the midst of his suffering, what happens? He starts questioning. Okay, He starts questioning. And again, we see that all over the place. We saw it in Job 3. Um, we see it in Lamentations 3. We've already looked at that. Uh, psalm 13.1. This is an interesting psalm. Do you know it? That's right. Yeah. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Okay. Now, if you read ahead, it's interesting what happens in the psalm, but the psalm begins over here. And he says, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? Now, does God ever forget his people? No. Does God ever, you know, is he ever sleep? Isaiah helps us with that, right? No, he never sleeps. But there are times when we're not living in that place where we're remembering and trusting and recalling. We're not actively reminding ourselves of the thing. And then we start questioning things that we know aren't true, Right? And that's what we see the psalmist doing. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted? It makes us think of Job, doesn't it? All those questions. All those questions that he begins to answer. Yes, Gary. You know, in 2 Peter, it talks about all the spiritual qualities that are added to the Christian's life. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. It's funny. Um, do it, if you go to like Blue Letter Bible, uh, uh, an online Bible where you can type in a word and it looks for it all over the Bible, type in forgets one time. It's amazing how important remembering and not forgetting it is to, to God. He's always talking about that because it, it's so much of an issue. Yeah, Rich. Well, I appreciate you saying that because I, I think that's true. You know, um, it's not like we, we, you know, is God omniscient or not? Hmm, I don't know. It's not like that. It's, it's, it's um, probably my favorite verse that describes what you're talking about is Psalm 16 when, when he says, I have set the Lord continually before me. And I think what he's saying there is, I am being active in keeping God in my consciousness throughout the day. And then he says, because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So and I think that's what he's describing there. Yeah, Roger. I find it is interesting that you start down this road right at the beginning and then mm-hmm. you turn around and question and accuse God of forgetting. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yes, ma'am. That's true. Yeah. And we need mm-hmm. to think, the Lord has come. Mm-hmm. Come on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we haven't even mentioned his name this morning. So mm-hmm. in this, and mm-hmm. I think we we need to see, we are in the age of grace. And we right. have, the Lord has come, he's paid for the sins of the world, and here we are, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Yes. And without knowing that, mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. But the principle that you're illustrating here is equally true in the New Testament. So mm-hmm. That's what Gary was, was saying. Yeah. Again, Colossians. Mm-hmm. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things mm-hmm. above where Christ right. is, seated at mm-hmm. the right hand of God. Set your mind, remember. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's all there. It's all there. And I, th- I appreciate what you're saying, Sally, because I think, you know, Job lived in a different dispensation and lacked the fullness of the resources that we enjoy. And yet, and yet we do the same things. You know, and, that, and that's what I think is so important about your point is, yeah, right, right. Mm-hmm. No, that's, and, I th- and I think if we can make an application of that, it's that, you know, we are we are more graced, we are more privileged, and and then I think, um, you know, that 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 means we have. I say, you know, we need to be more faithful because I don't know if that's true, but just, you know, God gives us a lot more than those Old Testament saints, and uh, that's a privileged position. So, all right, good good comments there. The last one is accusing. I'm sorry, the second last one is accusing, and we've seen that in Job. Um, Just a couple of verses here to remind ourselves of what we've seen before. Um, Where are we at here? 12. Yeah, chapter 24, verse 12. He says, God does not pay attention to folly. Remember that? It's where he starts... He starts accusing God of wrongdoing. Verse 21, he wrongs the barren woman and does no good for the widow. He drags off the valiant by his power. Verse 23, he provides them with security and they are supported. And his eyes are on their ways. They are exalted a little while, then they were gone. Moreover, they are brought low like everything gathered up. And Job even says, if it is not so, who can prove me a liar and make my speech worthless? He says, you know what? God doesn't always do everything right. He ignores the widow. He ignores the barren woman. He doesn't pay attention to folly. He doesn't notice when the wicked prosper. And you see him slide in that accusing. And then, of course, 
the contending where God says, will the fault fighter contend with the Almighty, where he's actually calling him to come to court. Now, um, I took kind of what um, uh, what we had here, and, um, you know, when, when this stuff comes to mind, you guys know it takes me a week or two to get it on here. You understand that, right? Because this, this is just kind of pops into my head. Um, this takes a lot longer. But, but watch this. I mean, you've, you've seen the progression here. And then on the other side, forgetting, questioning, and accusing. Uh, I added to that, um, what, are, what are some emotions that reveal what side of the ark that we're on? Here's, here's a few motions, and uh, we talked about this last week. One is a progression of faith in God. One is a progression of faith in self. You know, understand that? Uh, what we haven't said so far is over here, I'm trusting in myself, I'm trusting in my own righteousness, I'm not looking to Christ. I'm not looking to, to Him alone. And there's a progression there. But look at some of these emotions that happen. When you're on the left side there, that's typically where you are. You're okay. You're, you're hoping in God. There's a peace and joy in your heart. E- even in the midst of great affliction, you're, not saying, you're saying, I'm hurting, Lord, but I'm okay. I'm discouraged, Lord, but I'm hoping in you. I'm, I'm sad, Lord, but I have joy in you. You can say that. that that's, not, that's not irrational. That, that's where real Christians live when things happen. But then, but then, when we live over here, we're anxious, we're fearful, we're frustrated, and we're discontent. And those, those emotions are, are warning signs, aren't they? When you start feeling some of these, remember, these are, just, these are just the symptoms of this. And this is a problem. Okay. Um, and I think what's neat, what, we, what I haven't mentioned as we've gone along is you see all of these emotions illustrated on the surface in the Psalms, in Jeremiah, in Job, but underneath... What's going on is a heart that is struggling to either trust God or a heart that is trusting in self, however far down the progression the person is. Okay. So I hope that that's helpful to you to kind of picture it like that. Um, but that's, um, that's a, a, I think, a pattern that we can see in Job and we can certainly see it in the Psalms that can help us. Um, because Job, again, where do we start? Job goes from here to here in one chapter. Okay? And, and in the midst of incredible chronic suffering. Yes? I think we could also add pride on the right side. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, we're going we're to get there because cause what is this? That's pride. Yeah. And actually, that was a great segue. D, I appreciate that. Let's look at God's main point, and we'll come back to what you're saying here in a minute, okay? Flip back at the text. Flip back to chapter 40 of Job, and, and, and watch this here, okay? God finishes his first response to Job. The Lord says to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? That's a legal term. Will you accuse me? Will you 
Will you do that, Job? Let him who reproves God, literally him who rebukes God. I was talking to somebody earlier this week. If you do a study on contending in the Bible, there's one word that usually goes with the word contending in the Bible. It's death. Okay, I'm serious. And here's why I want to point out this out. You read God's response to Job, and you remember that in our, in our culture, Job's in ICU with tubes going all over the place. That's where Job is in our culture. Okay, And if you have that picture of where Job is really at, and you read God's response, you think, gee, God, that's kind of harsh. But you know what the reality is? The reality is the fact that God did not kill him should be very, very surprising to us. Because people that contend with God die in the Bible. And so when you hear the directness of Job's, of God's response to Job, I want you to remember two things. That is a gracious, wonderful, merciful reply Because he is not judging Job as perhaps he should. And the other thing that the strength of God's response reminds us is that it is no small thing to contend with the Creator. That, that's not, that, (laughs) that's a big deal. Okay? It's dangerous, it sure is. Job chapter 40 verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand in my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer even twice, I will add no more. Okay? So Job says, I'm not going to say anything because I know better now. Verse 6, God goes at him again. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. Okay? Here is, and I think Greg and I were talking about this the other day, and I, I agree with Greg, this is, this is the bottom line of the whole book, okay, in terms of all that's happened, okay? Verse 8, Will you really, Job, annul my judgment? Then he gets personal. Will you condemn me that you may be justified? You see that? That's, that's God putting his finger on the issue in Job's heart. Job is attempting to defend himself, to justify himself by condemning the perfect, holy God of the universe. God didn't get it right. I don't know if you'll agree with me on this, but... The heart of ungodliness is usurping God's position and acting as God's judge. It doesn't get much worse than that. It's hard to boil down ungodliness because it's so ugly and it has so many forms. But I think the heart of it is usurping God's position. In other words, you want to be God. And then standing in judgment of God. Now, it's interesting. That's the inclination of every human heart because of sin, isn't it? Romans 1, what what, what does the creature do? He exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and he worships and serves the creature instead of the creator. 
He usurps God's role. He says, I don't want you, God. I don't want to submit to you as God. I want to be God. Thank you very much. Right? And isn't Satan trying to do that with Job? Watch, watch. You're right, you're right. See, are you guys reading ahead? That was Adam and Eve's sin, wasn't it? Oh, no, no, the Lord knows that in the day you eat of it, you will be like God, knowing good and evil, right? You're not going to die. And what Satan is doing, Satan is telling them to disobey, that's true, okay? But what's more subtle and what's more important is Satan is saying to Eve, you can stand in judgment of what your Creator has told you. You can decide what's right and wrong for yourself. In effect, you can be your own God. Okay. And as Sally mentioned, that's where it started. What did, what did the morning star, what, what, did, what did Satan do in heaven? What did he say in Isaiah 14? Remember? I will ascend to heaven... I will make myself like the Most High. You know, we have to remember that there is a warfare going on constantly in yes. the heavenly places. That's right. That's right. Now, let me ask you a question. Where did this whole book start? It starts in heaven. Satan going to God. Okay. Now, I want you to see where did it end up? Job ends up in the same place where Satan began. You see that? It comes full circle. Job is acting like Satan. Now, lest we be too hard on our older brother in the faith, Job, we do the same thing. We do the same thing when we're on that, remember that right side, when we're over here, when we're discontent, when we're frustrated, when we're angry, when we lack contentment, because we don't like what God is doing. You say, that's pretty harsh. That's why God's so serious here. That's why this is such a big deal. That's why he gets in Job's kitchen and said, you don't mess around with this. And in His grace, He gives him another opportunity. One of you said it earlier. That's pure, unadulterated pride. That's exactly what it is. John Stott says this, Pride is more than the first of the seven deadly sins. It is itself the essence of all sin. Now listen to this. For it is the stubborn refusal to let God be God and with the corresponding ambition to take His place. It is the attempt to dethrone God and enthrone ourselves. Sin is self-deification. Right? Or Jonathan Edwards, in his advice... To new converts, he says this. It's his eighth point of advice. Remember that pride is the worst viper that is in the heart, the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ. 
It was the first sin that ever was and lies lowest in the foundation of Satan's whole building. It is the most difficult to root out, and it is the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all lusts, and it often creeps in insensibly in the midst of religion and sometimes under the disguise of humility. Um, hmm. Then there's Tozer. This is a little bit of an extended quote, but, but track with me, okay? This is, this, is, this is gold. Man is a created being and derived and contingent self who of himself possesses nothing, listen to this, but is dependent each moment for his existence upon the one who created him after his own likeness. The fact of God is necessary to the fact of man. Think God away, and man has no ground of existence. Okay, so far so good. Man, for all his genius, is but an echo of the original voice, a reflection of the uncreated light. As a sunbeam perishes when cut off from the sun, so man, apart from God, would pass back into the void of nothingness from which he first leaped at the creative call. You with me? Okay. The teaching of Christianity is that man chose to be independent of God and confirmed his choice by deliberately disobeying a divine command. This act violated the relationship that normally existed between God and his creature. It rejected God as the ground of existence and threw man back upon himself. Therefore, he became not a planet revolving around the eternal sun, capital S, but a sun, little s, in his own right, around which everything else must revolve. The natural man is a sinner because and only because he challenges God's selfhood in relation to his own. You still there? Let's keep going. For him, self, little s, becomes self, capital S. And in this, he unconsciously imitates Lucifer, that fallen son of the morning who said in his heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will be like the Most High. Okay, now, if if I totally lost you, come back and listen, because this is the part I really want you to hear, okay? Because man is born a rebel, he is unaware that he is one. He is con- his constant assertion of self, as far as he thinks of it at all, appears to him a perfectly normal thing. He is willing to share himself, sometimes even to sacrifice himself for a desired end, but never to dethrone himself. No matter how far down the scale of social acceptance he might slide, he is still in his own eyes a king on a throne, and no one, not even God, can take that throne from him. Sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one. A moral being created to worship before the throne of God sits on the throne of his own selfhood, and from that elevated position declares, I am. Tozer concludes, that is sin in its concentrated essence. That's why this is such a big deal. What Job has fallen into is sin in its essence. Mm-hmm. and demanding 
That's right. Yeah, and that's why we started here, because it's normal. That's what we all do. Okay. Now, let's summarize this, okay? Job's calamity was not God's punishment for some specific sin in his life, right? We understand that, right? Rather, Job's suffering was designed by God to reveal and then rescue Job from a much more dangerous condition in his heart, his unseen pride. Okay, do you get that? That's the point of the book. The events of Job's life were further designed by God to thwart Satan and magnify his own name by showing Satan's premise to be completely wrong about worship. And secondly, to reveal more of himself in addressing the three areas of his character which needed clarification, his worth, his justice, and his nature and intent in suffering. Okay. This is what God focuses on. I, I said it months to you ago. I want to say it again. Suffering is God's rescue operation. Okay? And ironically, what God is going after is something more dangerous than all the other things the friends accuse him of. Because that's the bottom line. It's sin in its essence. It's the worst viper in the heart. Okay? You understand what Job's about now? <laughs> yeah, Doc. Mm-hmm. He was. Yep. Yep. It is. Yes. And I think that you got to remember that you know this is the main point for the message this morning. But but this this is still true. This is about God and Satan, and he is you know God handpicked him to make that point to Satan. Okay, one more and then we we got to go. I know we're out of time, but we just, because um, you said you were mentioning that other verse mm-hmm. in the song where I constantly put the God before me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and what did God do um, to reveal all this? He just simply revealed himself. He literally came before him. Yes, he came yeah. before him. And like Sally said, what do we have yeah. that a full canon of yeah. Scripture and the Holy right. Spirit to yeah. reveal it to yeah. us? Yes.